Oh, wait, 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 one thing. Do I talk about this fucking paper that I don't know anything about, or do I hang back? Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, how are you on this balmy February day? I'm doing rather well. I'm uh, feeling uh, sexed up, to be frank. <laughs> Get out of my house. <laughs> we just, uh, at our, you know, the U- University of Toronto Social Personality Area Research Group, we heard a wonderful talk by Amy Muse, who actually apparently is a, a longtime listener. So hi, Amy. Um, she gave a wonderful talk and it occurred to me as she, she, she was talking, um, you, well, you and I have not had sex once. And like, this is weird. No. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I took away from that talk as well. Absolutely. <laughs> that was my main takeaway. Yeah. I, I think you're not communally oriented enough in the sexual domain. That's right. I'm just not giving or indulgent enough of your sexual needs. But I would I would say that it's your job to be communally oriented about my desire not to have sex, which is also a thing that I learned is important. That's true. So I so maybe we're okay then. Yeah, I think we're good. Okay, so let's <laughs> let, let, let's abandon this <laughs> extremely awkward topic uh, and uh, and welcome our guest. Uh, we have with us today. I'm delighted to say Rob Willer, who is uh, a professor of sociology at Stanford University. He also holds courtesy appointments in the departments of psychology and an organization. Yeah, organizational behavior. Why can I not talk? And he is, uh, as well, the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab at Stanford. So, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, uh, we, uh, I guess we should, full disclosure, say we had our first ever recording fuck up. Oh, and first ever. First. Yes, exactly. Uh, we, we had a, unblemished a completely unblemished record and and then we had a uh, super genius here on the show and, <laughs> and and the audio was tragically lost i should say you know talking to dave pizarro um it does happen right so uh this is it's nice to get it over with pull off the band-aid we've now lost some audio we know how it feels and it turns out it's not so bad it's fine you just get to have another nice chat you know I mean, I value the opportunity to speak more with you guys, especially about the exact same topics that we spoke about before. I, I myself am sort of like the uh, the like albino character from Da Vinci Code that has like the metal, you know, uh, device to to cause pain to himself because uh, I feel so much guilt that I I'll just be periodically inflicting pain upon myself in an effort to assuage that guilt. Ah, uh, don't worry about it. it. It's a pleasure. It was a pleasure the first time, and I'm sure it'll be a pleasure this time as well. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So um, let's talk about what we're drinking, shall we? Yes. Uh, so you all, uh, you supplied beer, which usually means whatever you've, whatever's in your, in your fridge, uh, which is usually means someone has left beer for you. That is correct. Yes. Right. So we are drinking a, a beer from the land of my father, uh, Stella Artois uh, from Belgium. Um, it's been around since 1366. It is, uh, it is a beer. 
we've discussed this beer before. I'm actually not drinking beer today because you might be able to hear I'm, I've had a little bit of a cold or something. So I'm drinking a hot toddy, which does have whiskey in it. So I feel like I'm, you know, in the spirit of things, at least. It's uh, whiskey and lemon and honey. And it's very tasty, actually. Is this your second time having a hot toddy on the show? That's possible. I get a lot of colds. You get a lot of colds. Okay. Yeah, I feel like this has happened before. Uh, that maybe. Um, so anyway, Rob, what have you got there? All right. Well, so I'm out here in the Bay Area, and I was given this Anchor Beer Brewers Pale Ale Galaxy Hop Blend. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I like it. Kind of tastes Ooh. like a Sierra Nevada. Nice. That sounds. That sounds delicious. So, well, cheers, Rob. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Okay. So. We have a lot that we want to talk to Rob about, actually. But before we do that, Mickey, uh, you are going to present some scientific evidence for why it's a good idea to do drugs, no? That, that, that is essentially like, you know, the, the, my thesis throughout this, this entire podcast. So I saw this paper, um, Azim Sharif uh, tweeted it out and I'm like, oh, you well, we have to talk about this. So the title of the paper is transformative experience and social connectedness mediate the mood enhancing effects of psychedelic use in naturalistic settings. It's a mouthful. Um, the title could have been taking mushrooms at, you know, Burning Man is fun. Uh, but, but this is a, a more scientific sounding uh, title. Uh, let me just name the authors. Uh, Matthias Forstman, Daniel Yudkin, Anaya Proser, Megan Heller, and Molly Crockett. Um, yeah, so I just saw this, this, this paper and, um, I thought there was upper alley for a number of dimensions. Well, number one is, you know, I like, I like, uh, I like research studies on drugs. So that's fun. But this was very, very interesting because it is in a way like, what we've been kind of advocating for in the past few episodes, you know, field research, um, descriptive studies, uh, although this, this had some causal elements too, it wasn't purely descriptive. Um, but it was impactful. It was also examining drug use, not in a therapeutic context. I think, uh, there's been a lot of talk of, uh, of uh, psychedelics, uh, used for depression and other, um, uh, clinical disorders. But this is more like, Hey, there's a bunch of people at concerts. So they, 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 they got, uh, over a series of three years, um, they had 1200 participants, uh, across six, multi-day mass gatherings. I love how they just, you know, multi-day mass gatherings. Uh, they couldn't just call it a music concert or something like that. Um, I tried to actually find, I didn't look that hard, mind you, uh, what c- the concerts were, but I imagine some of them were in the US, some of them were in the UK, so maybe Burning Man. Uh, what, are the, what are the other big concerts at, uh, in the US? Uh, Coachella. Yeah, Coachella. Maybe Glastonbury in the UK or, or the Reading Festival. That's still going on. Um, in any case, uh, what they did is they, they set up a little booth uh, at these uh, at these concerts uh, called, I think, uh, Play Games for Science. And they got uh, they they tested people, and this is key because I didn't really get this until uh, after I read more deeply. They tested people, I believe, in the morning, like maybe like from like 10 a.m. until 1 p.m. Um, so people aren't necessarily high. <laughs> there were some people that were high, um, but they they were very careful to screen them out, and they were looking at people after they were high, maybe twenty four hours after they were high, or even like a week uh, into being high. And essentially, what they find, and, and this is why I I must admit I was even though I love the method and and the topic it is so cool, I was primed to kind of dislike it a little bit because what they found is. 
I mean, ask anybody who's done Magic Mushroom. They'll tell you this. You don't need to ask 1,200 people. But people felt good. <laughs> they were in a good mood. Um, they reported having transformative experiences. Uh, they felt more connected. And again, you ask anybody uh, who's done Magic Mushrooms, they'll, they'll tell you the, the, the same thing. Unless they're bad tripping, and then it's a fucking nightmare. Um, but what's, I think, in, more interesting about what they found, and I liked it as I read it more and more, is that... Again, they weren't getting people who were high. So they were getting people who were like no longer high. Maybe they were high, t- you know, 24 hours earlier. And people who are, who did mushrooms are still feeling good. They're still feeling like they have a transformative experience. They're still feeling like they're socially connected. Um, the other cool part of the study is that they, well, it is, you know, these, these big festivals, people are doing all kinds of drugs. Um, and they actually, you know, uh, listed all the drugs that people were taking. Uh, the number one drug of choice was, to no one's surprise, um, was alcohol, I believe. Uh, I'm not counting nicotine here. And number two was, uh, uh, you know, cannabinoids. Uh, and then I forget what, what what the rest were, but, but you know, uh, but getting drunk and getting high on on weed were the, the the main two, and then a bunch of people did psychedelics, and they controlled for those other drugs. So to me, that was super interesting. Um, that you know they're finding these effects over and above the effects of some of these other drugs. So I really liked it. I thought it was cool. Uh, I must admit, uh, sometimes I read studies and I'm like, man, I wish I had done that. And this is one of those studies. Um, I also wish I was an RA in this. <laughs> A research assistant for this, uh, for this, you know, this study, because it'd be a fun uh, summer summer project. Yeah, so uh, I enjoyed reading this. Um, I thought it was great to get a Templeton grant to basically like go to a bunch of music festivals, ask people about what drugs they've done. Um, so, Rob, you're you're fairly close to Burning Man. Have you ever thought about going there and collecting data? I've never gone to Burning Man, actually, uh, but sure. Yeah, no, we've all had. Uh... We've all had aspirations of charging trips to, to Burning Man and like places to our research accounts. And uh, I, I, I respect the researchers that pulled this off legitimately. It's, it's, it's a good move. It's a good I move. applaud them. Yeah, I, I think kudos for that. Um, the one other thing that I thought was really clever about the paper is like you're trying to get people to admit that they've done something illegal. Right. And they were worried about that. So the way that they got around that is they asked for each of these types of drugs. Have you done a drug from this category? So like, let's say it's cannabinoids, right? So they'll have like, you know, marijuana, but then they'll also have a legal thing that falls into that category. Right. And they only say yes or no to the category. So they always have plausible deniability that they could have been like, Oh, no, I meant the like CBD oil or whatever. Um, I thought that was really neat. I don't, I, I don't remember seeing that any place else. Um, but I, I wonder whether they came up with that or whether this is sort of a standard thing in, in, uh, areas where you're trying to get people to admit to doing things that might be illegal. Yeah, that was very, very, that was very, very clever. I, I agree. Um, so now because so many people, these, these, these 1200 people did all kinds of drugs, they can also compare the effects, uh, of these other drugs on again, well-being, on, on, on mood, on transformative experiences. And there are a couple of, I think, interesting findings there. And, and again, re- recall, this is not when people are high. Uh, it's the day after. Um, so, uh, first, uh, you know, my, my favorite drug is, 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 is cannabis. And, um, they also found that people, even the day after, uh, uh claim to have transformative experiences. Uh, even some epistemic transformative experiences. But unlike um, with psychedelic use, once 
the researchers controlled for expectations of having a transformative experience, the effect went away. So it was really, you know, one argument is that it's a placebo. People expected to have this kind of transformative experience, and they do. Um, and with uh, psych- psychedelic drugs, yes, they also expect to have these experiences, but even after you control for it, you know, there, there's still an effect that remains. So that was, I thought, really cool and interesting. Um, the other tidbit... Um, was, of course, they looked at alcohol, which is a drug that we, uh, well, I <laughs> regularly, enga- regularly uh, engage in, uh, you sometimes do well, and they found the exact opposite, okay? So people were in a bad mood. They didn't want to hang around people. They had fewer uh, transformative experiences. But again, remember, this is not when people are drunk. This is the day after. This is when they're hungover. Um, so when you're hungover, you're a jerk. You're not in a good mood, uh, which also, I think... Uh, Many people could have told you. Yeah, I I believe that. So yeah, we'll uh we'll we'll put a link to this in the um in the show notes for people who want to check out this paper. I think it's worth reading. Oh, one other cool thing is I noticed uh, the data are all open access. Uh, the analyses were pre-registered. Uh, they didn't uh, 100% follow what they pre-registered, but they were transparent about saying, here's why we're doing something else, and here's what the pre-registration says. So I thought that was really cool to see in a, a journal like PNAS, which uh, you don't normally think of being like on the vanguard of like better methods or whatever. So I feel like this is this stuff is kind of spreading. Yeah. So I have one quibble. I wonder what you think about this, Yoel. So they did pre-register all their hypotheses. That was great. And they, they, they occasionally veered from their, uh, you know, their prescription. And that's fine. And they, they were very transparent about it. But they also, you know, had a bunch of other hypotheses about like some of the downstream consequences of taking psychedelics. Like, you know, for example, they, they, they thought it might influence behavioral measures of prosociality as measured by, let's say, the dictator game or the trust game or this, uh, this some other game that I, that I can't remember now. Um, and they kind of hid that in the supplemental methods, mostly because they didn't find anything. Now, it was there. It wasn't, they didn't really hide it. But unless you actually go into the supplemental methods, it wasn't clear that they had these other hypotheses. So I, I wasn't sure... I would have liked to have seen even those nulls in the paper itself because they did say it was clearly important enough that they pre-registered. But maybe this is a gray area. I don't know. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, it's a good question, particularly in a journal where you have a really tight word count. You might say, look, we just don't have the space to talk about a bunch of nulls. Um, that said, you know, predicting things and then dumping the failed predictions into the supplemental is also not great. So I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Rob, what do you think? No, I agree. I think it's a gray area. And then, yeah, I mean, I just totally agree with your take. The PNAS word limits make it ambiguous. Uh, it definitely seems like the kind of thing that ideally norms would would mandate that all pre-registered hypotheses are treated equally or at least appear in the main text, I would say. I mean, we have a paper we're working on now where we had a pre-registered hypothesis we didn't find and we footnote it in the main paper. And one could criticize that too, of like you're not giving as much emphasis and attention to the failed hypothesis as the successful one. But if things were the other way around, you know, um, you know, what would be in the footnote then, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I think I've done the same thing, footnoting thing, but like mentioning it, but then not giving the stats and kind of hiding it a little bit. So anyhow, it's a gray area. Uh, I did find it. It's not as if it was very hard to find, uh, but I just noted that. So anyways, I thought it was, I, I, I highly recommend this paper. Uh, you know, readers who are interested in this uh, topic should read it. It's, it was fun. Absolutely. Okay. So um, what we wanted to talk to Rob about 
is uh, he actually got in touch with us and was like, listen, guys, I have a number of controversial takes about the state of your field. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the reason we weren't just like, go fuck yourself is um, I, I think that, that Rob is actually, <laughs> well, in addition to that, we're just extremely nice, polite people. Um, Rob well, is really nice. one of us. Well, you know, I, we average out to like probably <laughs> media and politeness, I would say. Um, is, uh, Rob is in, a, I think, a really interesting position to um, to say some things about the field of, of social psychology. So, Rob, uh, your PhD obviously is in sociology. Your primary appointment is there, but you publish a lot in social and personality psychology journals, like in JPSP, for example, uh, you seem to have your kind of finger on what's what's happening in the field. Um, but at the same time, as a sociologist, you have this other perspective of, well, how are things done there? And then finally, sociology tends to look at kind of larger institutional structures and how those uh, uh, influence individual actors. I hope that's more or less right. Um, you'll mm -hmm. get a chance to correct me in a minute. Um, and I think that's a really useful framework for thinking about um, how did things go wrong in, in social psych and, and how might we fix some things that are that are not working optimally so with that I'll, I'll toss it over to you and maybe first you want to say a little bit for our listeners um who don't know that much about sociology what that actually is and whether that definition that i gave is more or less accurate yeah yeah i think i think it is i think it is thanks thanks for the generous introduction i like that you led with like the mild nagging that then turned into actually like a very generous uh, generous intro. <laughs> and of course, now I'm like, just desperate for more approval from you. Uh, so sociology, yeah, so my, my home discipline is sociology, but I, I think of myself as very active in, in psychology as well. And um, I sort of dually identify as a, as a sociologist and a, and a psychologist. And sociology is, I think, exactly as you described, it's a more macro oriented discipline. It's a discipline that's more multi-method. It emphasizes theory a little bit more, but also just kind of does theory a little bit differently uh, than psychology. And, you know, it's a, it's a great field and I enjoy being in, being in both fields, you know, and having, having a foot in both fields. But yeah, it is a little bit more oriented towards like sort of a structural systemic analysis of, you know, of, of phenomena and a little bit de-emphasizes individual level causation. Um, so, so I was thinking, and let me know how, how you all view this, because this is obviously, you know, your ship to steer, but I was thinking that I could operate as sort of like a server in a restaurant, just sort of serving up to you some, some, in this case, hot takes that you can chew into as you would like, uh, or just reject, you know, as, as just invalid on their face. How does this sounds good? Okay. Okay. Groovy. Okay. And so I'm going to refer to, uh, something called like the low replicability era, which I'm by which I mean the period in social psychology that's, I would say really ended, I would say, or it's certainly ending, um, maybe ended like a couple years ago, um, with substantial methodological reforms in this open science period and in, in social psych. And so when I, when I refer to this low replicability era, we might think of a period ending around like 2015, roughly, and then beginning, well, none of us really know, uh, <laughs> you know, like, was it 1990? Was it 1960? We could have that conversation too, but, but we'll, we'll just refer to this low replicability era that we're mostly out of now. 
And so my first hot takes, I'm coming in hot here. I don't know. Maybe this, maybe this isn't even that hot. You tell me. Um, but my first thing I want to propose to you is this idea that we think a lot in the conversation about open science and replication. We think a lot about the immediate harms that were done by this low replicability era. So unreliable findings we now feel like we can't believe. Uh, we've thought some about some negative indirect effects within social psychology, like people wasting time, you know, trying to pursue and extend findings that turned out not to be reliable. I, I personally have had that experience a lot. And it's one thing that I've, I've been frustrated by uh, trying to follow up on findings I took to be more reliable than they were. We've talked a little bit about some indirect negative effects of the low replication era, uh, people not getting published in journals when they maybe should have, uh, maybe people not even getting jobs when they should have, you know, and we've, we've, we've gone into that space a little bit. It's very sensitive space. You know, it's very tricky. But I, I'm going to argue we should also think at a syst more systemic disciplinary level about how the low replicability era in social psychology had negative consequences for entire other fields and subfields. Um, or I'm going to argue here that the size and notoriety of other fields was hurt by social psychologists uh, by this era of social psychologists, you know, not always practicing uh, the best methodological practices. So here, are some of the other fields we might think would be like the disciplines of political science, sociology, uh, the subfield of social psychology in sociology, um, and so on. So, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a bow on this point and then serve it up to you. So we don't look a lot at these effects outside of social psychology. Um, but it is the case that social psychology competes or ha and has competed for zero-sum resources with other fields. So they compete for faculty lines from deans. Uh, they compete for textbook sales. They compete for trade book sales. They compete for butts in seats in intro classes. They compete for coverage in the popular press. Uh, recruitment of talented young scholars that are interested in social science and arguably for decades, you know, uh, unfair research practices gave, gave an unfair advantage and, and a bunch of uh, resources, lines, notoriety, fame, talented researchers were swiped up, you know, who could have gone to economics or political science or sociology. Uh, and in this period, Social psychology did grow, right? It grew to be clearly the biggest subdiscipline in psychology, I believe. Uh, it, it spilled over into organizational behavior, became the dominant area in organizational behavior, management in business schools, um, and so on. And so some of the sub areas that, that atrophied in this time would be like IO psychology in business schools, I believe got smaller. Uh, social psychology and sociology got smaller. It's a correlational analysis. I can't prove this was causal. Um, and it may be that, you know, whole disciplines to a lesser extent uh, got smaller than the counterfactual. So by way of analogy, there was this guy, James, uh, James Fry, who published this nonfiction memoir uh, a few years ago, A Million Little Pieces that Oprah promoted and then recanted her promotion when it turned out that, you know, he had, it wasn't really nonfiction. He had greatly embellished his memoir. And, uh, you know, one of the harms is a bunch of people got lied to and they had to then delete from their head this memoir they thought was nonfiction. But arguably, the bigger harm was that a that other books did not get published, or at least one book did not get published and other books didn't get bought and other books didn't get read because people were reading this book, you know. So that's 
that's my hot take is we haven't thought enough about the effects outside of the field, the negative effects. Um, yeah. So uh, my response is, uh, first of all, I, I, you know, I, I think you're right. I, I had, I never really considered, you know, the extent to which our um, shoddy research practices would affect people out or fields outside of our own. Um, I think to some extent, uh, a, a psychology um, likes like often makes, you know, a, a, I think an upward comparison to the field of economics. And I think we see ourselves as much, much less influential, much less powerful. Um, uh, but really, you know, yeah, I, it's true. I haven't thought about like how we're competing with sociology, how we're competing with political science. Um, and I think you're right to the extent that, uh, to the extent that we're able to outcompete them unfairly. Um, well, then you know it's not just that people are uh, you know taking our classes, listening to us. I mean, people do. I mean, so uh, people do listen to us. When I was in graduate school, it was this. You know, this wasn't the case. We, you know, you wouldn't find social psychology regularly, or social or, or psychology more generally regularly in newspapers. But now we're in the papers. I think every day. Um, there's always some 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 story. We're giving you know talks. We're selling books. Um, it's kind of an amazing transformation that's happened over the past, let's say, 10, 20 years. Um, and I hadn't really thought of the, the consequences. But now, doesn't your argument, though, and, and I grant I think it's a good one, and, and, we, and I think we should think about it a bit more, um, but doesn't your argument hinge on these other fields not engaging in the same sorts of practices? Right. So it hinges on political scientists not using questionable research practices, not, you know, not have, not suffering from the same sort of publication bias, uh, not being influenced by the same perverse incentive. Same thing with sociology. Uh, same thing with IO psychology. Um, and it's, you know, mostly because I'm ignorant. I just don't know. Um, you know, it's not clear to me that, you know, the, the bad stuff that we're doing isn't also happening in these other areas. Yeah, so it's an excellent comeback that I I will struggle to rebut. Uh, so, <laughs> so I mean, on the one hand, you, you know, there's some like anecdotal data on this. Like, I, I definitely have the sense that up uptake of pre analysis plans and public posting of data was faster in political science and economics than psychology, but it definitely wasn't faster in sociology or anthropology, where it's you know like not used really at all still. Um, so you know. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you have that. Then, um, you know, the small n quantitative data sets where the researcher gathered the data set themselves and, you know, had all sorts of freedom to, you know, so, you know, select, select out research subjects and, um, you know, fit, fit a variety of models and exploit researcher degrees of freedom. That was also true in sociological social psychology. And in some ways, is arguably a bigger threat to validity in sociological social psychology in that sociological social psych did not emerge this internal convention of demanding three, four, five demonstrations in a top journal publication that psychology evolved as a way to self-check this concern. And I think, putting on my psychologist hat, I think we thought circa 2005 that that was an adequate internal correction and we're kind of surprised that demanding five experiments in JPSP wasn't enough, you know. Um, but anyway, to get back to the threat, I mean, really the proper way to assess this would be to do some sort of analysis, historical analysis across different social science disciplines of the extent of p-value clustering around 0.05. I guess that's the best idea I have for a way to get at this and to see, you know, was that 
was that stronger in psychology than in other fields. And I, I definitely have the sense that there's a, a kind of sociological research that uses secondary data sets, very, very large data sets, and where it's, I, I think it's a little less susceptible to p-hacking. And also, it's easier for other researchers to just download the data set, run the models themselves, see how sensitive they are, and get a comment in a top journal if they're super sensitive. And so I do feel like that kind of research in sociology and political science comes out of the low replicability era in the whole social sciences looking a lot better, you know, than frankly our research does, you know, the smaller and experimental work. Can we take a, a tiny detour? You've mentioned sociological social psychology. <laughs> that might be, no shade intended, something that some of our listeners are not familiar with. So maybe say a little more about what that is. Okay. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> this is the area I was I was originally trained in and am still active in. Uh, there is an area of social psychology and sociology. Uh, you may know it from, you know, early scholars like Irving Goffman or George Herbert Mead or, I don't know, W.I. Thomas. If you ever have looked up an old 1950s social psych article and saw it was published in Sociometry, that was a sociology journal. And, you know, uh, you know, when social psychology emerged, it really emerged at the intersection of psychology and sociology. So like the first two books uh, that were titled Social Psychology. Both came out in 1908, one in psychology, one in sociology. Uh, the field would, you know, the fields would talk to each other a fair amount. People, you know, would be appointed in places you wouldn't necessarily expect. Editorial boards would be made up of psychologists and sociologists, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, you know, even now the area of social psychology and sociology is uh, one of the sub areas that's ranked in sociology in U.S. News and World Report, you know, so it's still considered a significant sub area. Um, but over time, it went from being, I don't know, like 60-40 psych versus sociology to 70-30, 80-20. And now I'd say in terms of just raw numbers, it'd be, you know, 95-5, you know, yeah, something like that in terms of raw numbers of psychologically oriented social psychologists to sociological social psychologists, which is why you don't even know the area exists, perhaps. Um, but, yeah, well, you should because you and I sh had neighboring offices in a lab that was at Cornell that was once like a joint sociology, psychology, social psych lab. And that's why we had the pleasure to work next to each other awkwardly with a one-way mirror between us for years. That is all true. I can confirm. And yet, somehow, for those five years, I managed to learn nothing about what you do. So I guess that makes me the asshole. So uh, I guess like what during kind of the heyday of social psychology making it big in terms of media attention with these small n behavioral experiments what did it look like from outside so for the people in in sociological social psych for example what did they make of all this were they were they talking already about suboptimal research practices did they have other complaints what was the story there yeah it's a really good question and I can't say that I had a lot of conversations with folks about it. I mean, I, I guess I would say two main reactions that I registered. So one, fascination, interest, engagement, sociologists, you know, would try to replicate, extend, apply methods they were seeing in JPSB or frankly seen in the newspaper and then find it in JPSB. Uh, so, you know, a real 
interest, which I guess, you know, was asymmetric. Um, and then the, uh, the second thing would be some derision uh, that psychological social psychology was not very theoretical, which is, I think, a, you know, a difference of style that we could, we could debate which side one should be on. But sociological social psych kind of branched off in the 50s and 60s with a commitment to a formal theoretical, often even mathematical theoretical approach to studying social interaction that was like, we need to be working on developing theoretical research programs. This kind of brings me to my next point, my next hot take, by the way. But we should be developing these theoretical research programs that become progressively more valid and accurate in their description of, of social phenomena during a time when psychology, I mean, maybe more in like the 80s, I suppose, you know, got sexier, you know, um, a little bit more like what we saw in psych science in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and so there was maybe a little bit of that of like, oh, this field would be more serious if it was more focused on developing general theoretical knowledge and less interested in being sexy and surprising. Which, I, which could have been sour grapes, to be clear. I'm not, like, making this argument myself. Well, so this raises uh, an interesting possibility, which is sort of a response to what Mickey uh, asked, is that it's possible that there is a combination that's particularly bad of, A, being willing to be hack, file drawer, and so on, and B, kind of looking for the, like, maximally surprising, counterintuitive, kind of, like, attention-grabbing result, right? So you wouldn't expect that sociology, for example, or political science, for that matter, if they're not pre-registering, um, then you know, the analytic flexibility stuff certainly still applies there. But maybe in social psych, the negative impacts of doing that were heightened by the fact that they were going after a, a certain kind of finding, and that sociologists might have just been constrained from kind of like the maximal use of this sort of stuff by their adherence kind of to this tradition of like, Mm, just less flashiness, I suppose, like more incrementalism, right? Totally. Yeah. And if I was to like give my best argument for why I think sociological social psych specifically, that I don't want to like overfixate on this one subdiscipline, but like why it probably had more reliable research findings is that they just would shock you less. You would just not be that surprised by any of the, you know, two dozen papers I can put in front of you showing status creates influence or structural power leads to resource accumulation or, or what have you, or, or people try to recover valued identities when they get feedback suggesting they're not living up to them, you know, really straightforward, probably very true, you know, central theoretical arguments. Um, yeah, that you're like, yeah, okay, that study is probably true, even though the end doesn't look so good, you know, and the p value might not look any better than psych either. Yeah, I mean, there's a uh kind of an untested assumption that in fact those fields are more replicable right and we should say we we don't know that but it does seem kind of like plausible that if you're studying a hypothesis that just a priori just like kind of seems more obviously true uh that you're less likely to generate false positives you know i mean this is a bit uh, similar, I think, to the way that ego depletion has gone, where we went from these really kind of like surprising and counterintuitive findings of, you know, restraining yourself from eating a cookie makes you like worse at you know, tracing these impossible lines to what Mickey's doing now, which is like, if you tire the shit out of people, they're going to do a little worse, 
you know, it's like, yeah, I, I buy that second thing. That, that definitely seems plausible. Right. And I guess, I guess, I mean, I think your argument's really compelling, Rob, because, um, it suggests that like, we've really gone astray here, right? I mean, we're, uh, the bad stuff is, is crowding out like, not only good stuff in, in, and there is good stuff in psychology as well, including social psychology, but it's crowding out like, you know, perhaps reliable sources of knowledge in, in many, many other disciplines. And this is especially the, you know, kind of maybe sad because it seems like social psychology has encroached on other areas more and more. So now, I mean, when I first started, at least there wasn't so much research on political psychology. I mean, it, it was there, but it wasn't like now it's like a hot topic. Um, and I wonder, and I guess you would be a great person to ask because you, I know you do this kind of research. Is it the case that social psychologists are listened to more about political science than political scientists are to some extent? Mm, is that, that is that true? Yeah, that's very interesting. My my own sense, and ah, I really wish I was a political scientist here. Um, there's never one when you need one, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> but my own sense is that political psychology within political science is entirely unthreatened, or is largely unthreatened by the rise of social psychologists studying politics. You know, um, and, and it's not just social psychologists, right? Like e- economists, sociologists, you know. There's been an effect of like post 2016, lots of people taking up political topics a lot more. It's just very noticeable. And I would imagine on average, political scientists are like, I would, I would speculate annoyed by this, you know, and I think they would be within their rights to be annoyed by it. You know, people studying politics without, without having read the prior relevant research, you know? Um, but I, I don't perceive that there's, a resource threat to them. Now, the thing you said, I think could very well be true, that there's a threat in terms of the zero-sum public arena, you know, like uh, conversation, getting on Hidden Brain or getting a TED Talk on politics or getting a New York Times op-ed on a, on a political topic, that that real estate is to some extent finite and that it's been encroached upon and that it's annoying. I would bet that that is a sentiment that exists. Right. So before I, I think it was me, knocked you off into another area, you said, we were talking about theory. And you said, that's actually a great lead in to the second point I wanted to make. So why don't you go ahead and make that point? Okay. All right. Somebody knows how to do a podcast. Thank you. Yoel. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. All right. I'm, I'm, I like I'm, that the, the implied insult towards Mickey is what I no, like no, most about it's that. It's not towards Mickey. It was towards, I was insulting myself. Okay. So, uh, okay. My second hot take, which we're already really talking about is that the low replicability era, which we're thankfully moving out of, uh, had very negative consequences for theory in social psychology because it elevated surprise over programmatic understanding. And to detail my point here a little bit, I'm really thinking of this finding from the original Nozick et al. science article that uh, replicability in the hundred experiments that were replicated uh, correlated with expert ratings of the surprisingness of the original findings, which I just think is like such a terrific little small correlation in that paper that's so telling. And it rhymes with your common sense. You know, you you would guess that the more improbable, well, the more surprising seeming findings seem also more improbable, and that if you know scrutinized more, turn out to to be less reliable. Um, and, and that that helped them get published, that they were so, that they were surprising, right? And so basically, my thought is, 
that we said to our, so I'm putting on my psychologist hat again. I hope you don't mind. So we said to ourselves that who needs theory when you can have these stunning, shocking, one-off papers that grab our attention, they surprise us, they seem sexier than these you know more programmatic theoretical lines of work, even though they're less true, which we weren't fully cognizant of at the time. Um, but they don't lend themselves to theory building because they're unreliable and poorly behaved. You know, it's very hard to develop a theoretical research program on a phenomenon that you're struggling to even replicate and extend in the first place. Um, but a theoretically grounded programmatic line of work is very, very different as it gains a deeper understanding, as it becomes gradually more true, the thing we're supposed to be doing at work, uh, as it gets more reproducible, it also produces fewer and fewer surprising insights. And indeed, in cases where our, our lay intuitions in the first place were not very far off, it may never have produced a surprising insight in the first place. Is the original findings from the theory created may never have been surprising. And so ironically, as it gets more true, it uh, becomes more vulnerable to being cast aside if we overvalue surprisingness. Right. I mean, I, I do worry that we're like painting with a little bit too broad of a brush when we say social psychology is so-and-so because there's like plenty of like really um, in the best way, boring incremental work within social psych as well. Right. It's just like, just because of that, that's not the stuff that you see in the New York times, right? Like that's just people working away on persuasion or social identity, like putting tiny little bricks in the wall. And it's not really something that the popular press cares all that much about. Um, I guess it, it seems to me like this style of phenomenon driven research where it starts with like an observation about like, huh, that seems weird. And then you run some studies and bring in some theory to explain that. That's, that's something that I don't feel like I see that much outside of outside outside of social psychology maybe in economics actually like that that does sometimes happen like you know the and it's not necessarily a bad thing right so i i think if you do it rigorously it can be a really cool style of research but if you don't then you just have a bunch of sort of disconnected of i don't know like kind of observations with like some empirical stuff sort of hung on there almost as an afterthought uh yeah i, I think i think you're right but I want to push back a little bit as, as well uh, to make a complementary point to yours, uh, UL, and that is that um, I think when we think of you know some of these counterintuitive findings that you're talking about, Rob, and I agree they are like they they, they are kind of crazy and like wow that's that's like uh, they can't be right. I think if you you know ask the people who you know you know derive these tests, you know they would argue at least in some cases that. You know, these are tests that are coming from a very, very rich theoretical background. So as one example, um, you know, I think one of the, the, you know, poster childs of, you know, say, replicable to the crisis would be some of this work on embodied cognition. Um, you know, and there's like, you know, infamously, like on, in, in, on Twitter, you know, there's some of these crazy studies out there. Look, if you actually put an empty box near someone while they're thinking, they're more creative. They're thinking outside the box. Um, and, um, but I mean, this is kind of the flashy finding. But I think if you, you know, probe the people who generated some of the uh, these ideas it's very very theoretically grounded they would argue um so the study of body cognition comes from cognition and and you know uh, a barcelona's come up with this stuff and you know i think uh i think 
you know, even again, the, the, these people were guilty of some of the craziest studies would argue they're theory rich. Same thing with, with, with behavioral priming. So John Barge is, is very well known for doing this, some of, some of this research, but he had been doing this kind of research, maybe not you know, with, with semantic associations, um, uh, priming actual behavior, but just looking at it semantically and finding really, really robust effects that was found, again, starting from cognition and then went to like attitudes. And that stuff is probably robust, but it's when he went to the jump to like actual behavior where we're like, whoa, this is, this is not crazy talk. But again, the theory is actually kind of strong, even though the, the, the let's say the, the finding is like, wait, you're telling me if I see the word bingo and Cadillac, I'm going to walk more slowly. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but again, if you understand like, you know, the, the history of these ideas, there, I think John Barnes would certainly argue this is a theoretically informed idea. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think I've, overly caricatured this because I'm not sure if this is exactly your point, but that there were unreliable findings that were embedded in essentially theoretical research programs. And I think it's in part because we underestimated the extent of our researcher degrees of freedom or the potential to generate, you know, there's like, well, you know, research on ego depletion you know, looks less less robust than it did. Uh, I mean, Mickey, you can speak to this much better than I can. Uh, you're right. The the whole automaticity area, at least with behavioral outcomes, doesn't you know doesn't look as robust as it did by far. Uh, but those were like interim management theory. I think there isn't there a recent meta analysis. It's not looking good for that too. And you know, these were or at least, you know the, the effect at least is is much smaller than than what's thought to be the case. Um, and these were theoretical research programs. It certainly looked like them, you know, like they laced together dozens of papers, you know, dozens and dozens of experiments. And so my central idea that like, uh, if you're using, uh, like questionable research practices, then this means you're going to move towards one, two experiment papers that are super surprising, but not replicable and away from theory. This is a good this is a very good re rebuttal. And I guess the true, well, so I guess I would reassess my position and say we need both things or we would benefit the most from both things, like a strong commitment to theory and a tolerance for results that maybe get less exciting uh, over time or maybe never were that exciting, you know, uh, upweighting validity and our sort of preference uh, preference function. And then we also need the reliable research practices because as it turns out, with um, questionable research practices, not only can you generate a five-experiment JPSP article that's not reliable at all, you, you can generate a whole research program. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And I, I want to say one last thing, which and this is maybe I'm playing devil, devil's advocate here, so I'm not sure I fully buy this the, the, this idea. But tell me what you think. Um, I wonder if we can make an argument that we should be, you know. You know, we should be, you know, a driving a programmatic research and, and having, you know, again, a, a, a strong theory. But from those theories, actually, we should preferentially test the outlandish hypotheses that, that come from that theory. Because that's now a strong test of the theory. And if you're wrong, well, then maybe, you know, uh, you, you, you've potentially falsified the theory. And therefore, you know, you, you've submitted your, 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 your theory to a severe test. Um, so I'm not sure I, I totally buy that, but uh, wh what do you think? I think Karl Popper makes a point like this, uh, that, you know, you want risky tests of the experiment, you know, uh, tests where 
it's really on the line. The experiment is predicted, you know, the theory predicts, you know, a certain result and in no other explanations could predict that result. And so it offers truly discerning evidence for the theory if the test is supported. That's right. So that would, that would suggest like some of these counter to, I mean, I think when we think of risky hypotheses, we think like very precise hypotheses. We think like, tell me like to the third decimal point, you know, but I think another way of, of considering that is, you know, outlandish ideas that stem from your theory, not just these outlandish ideas you come like pop into your head one day. Um, but you know, I, I, ideas that stem from, from a theory. Uh, and the crazier they are, the, the more severe the test, and therefore um, the stronger you, conclusions you can draw from the results of that test. I, I, you know, this hasn't worked out at all, but it strikes me that this may be an interesting way of uh, separating theories that are, like research programs that are actually theory-based versus those that just kind of point at a theory in a way that's almost, uh, I don't know, symbolic. So to me, the embodiment stuff is a, is a great example of that uh, in that, you know, they have this like very kind of complicated stuff about like scaffolding and language and Lakoff and Barslu and et cetera, et cetera. But like, really, it's just like, here's this crazy thing that happens. And now we're going to gesture over at this other thing and like say it's theoretical. And I think as a thought experiment, is it possible to like come up with an experiment that would be the kind of test, Mickey, that you're suggesting, where if the thing doesn't work, then you're like, oh, we really need to rethink embodiment. Like, it doesn't seem that way to me, right? If it's like, well, balancing on this like uh, shaky box doesn't affect this judgment, it's like, well, some of the assumptions must have been wrong, right? So they're like, effectively, they're, discon- they're not disconfirmable. Right. No, I agree. I mean, this is why, like, um, falsificationism doesn't work in the end, because you can always rely on, um, it's not the theory that's wrong, but it's the, like, uh, auxiliary assumptions that are wrong. So, you know, in practice, it doesn't, doesn't actually work that way. And I agree with you. I, I don't think, like, you know, a failed embodiment study is going to shake anyone's, you know, a, a true believer's, you know, belief in embodiment. Unless right. they're standing on a wobbly box. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I want to just follow one, one thing you said. I, I think what you said is, is right. You well, and that is like you know, uh, with, let's, let's let's stick with embodiment for the moment. The rich theoretical tradition. I think you drive lots of hypotheses, and then you're saying that like actually, what happens though is that um, in social psych, we kind of just point to those theories to come up, like essentially, like post hoc justify some of these crazy ide- other ideas that we have. But how can you tell the difference between this kind of shady theory versus a real theory, one that actually is legitimately, you know, based on some of these ideas, not just pointing to something symbolically, but actually it's based on it. How do you tell the difference? I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying is like, maybe that kind of a theory, you can make a prediction from the theory that if it doesn't pan out, would really cause you to reevaluate it. So, and I, I think it may just be, and boy, I always feel like out of my death when we go into this philosophy of science stuff. So I'll just like stay away from that language. But I think it might be like in areas where people have just spent a lot of time doing kind of the boring, small scale incremental stuff. We just have a better understanding of all the auxiliary things. And so we're in a better position to say, well, all these auxiliary things check out. And now the theory really says that this should have happened and it didn't. 
in, then you can be more confident of saying, hey, we need to reevaluate something, right? So like, I don't know, we keep talking about um, social identity. So like, let's say you create these minimal groups and you see that people are like, in terms of like rating scales, um, they're favoring their in-group, they're, they don't like the out-group, but then some other downstream consequence that the theory says is happening isn't, then you're in a pretty good position to say like, well, that's at least a boundary condition, right? Like they are identifying with this group and they're, they're hostile towards the out-group, but now this other thing that's implied isn't panning out. And then you can say like, well, we've learned something useful, right? Whereas with your embodiment study that doesn't work, I'm not sure that that's the case. Yeah, I think uh, that time. What, what do you think, Rob? I think one guard against these concerns is uh, what what people often call formal theory. So uh, very, very explicitly and clearly stating the general claims of the theory as a series of, you know, propositions, or some people would say assumptions or axioms, what have you, and then defining the critical terms very clearly, deriving derivations, operationalizing into specific uh, you know, observable hypotheses, uh, you know, your, your operational hypotheses. I think all that is not exciting work. It's not super sexy. It probably isn't valued as much, but it really pays off for, for science in that it makes your theory more falsifiable. It doesn't necessarily pay off for a researcher. I mean, just as an example, and I, I feel bad, like I'm bagging on terror management theory here, but, uh, as somebody, away. Okay, all right. <laughs> Someone who consumed that theory a good bit in the 2000s and was sort of doing research adjacent to it, you know, there was this move that was made away, you know, there was the theory was that, you know, under mortality salience that you would support the dominant cultural worldview more. And then some results came out that kind of complicated that. And, and then I remember reading this paper, where it was all of a sudden, you know, we endorsed the personal cultural worldview more. And it was to account for, I think, people... Democrats and Republicans went different directions in response to a mortality salience effect. And, and and I was like, wait a second, this is a huge, huge change to the theory. Now now we have a central claim that's a an interactional claim rather than a main effect. This is a massive shift. But it was just one word, you know, it was it was something that if everything is just sort of a you know, just a verbal expression of the ideas behind the theory. It's just one word and could get by the peer reviewers pretty easily. And now there's two different versions of the theory. And now the theory can cover a main effect and a moderated version of that main effect. And, you know, later they, they did some theoretical work to kind of make it all, you know, put it all back together. They faced this contradiction and, and I think work to remedy it. But at the time I was like, man, if you all had had to write down proposition one equals this, you know, and you were citing that, you know, you would have you would have had a lot of risk you'd assume because that that original articulation of the paper it's going to get re- you know it's going to need to be revised at some point you know that that original articulation of the theory and so you know the risk that your 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 papers might you know not sustain the test of time that you're going to go back and fix the theory and make it better goes way up but this problem for science of like small verbal shifts can effectively make a theory unfalsifiable would be greatly mitigated right and that's something that the, that sort of explicit statement about what does a theory say is not something that you're going to do unless the reviewers make you or unless the, you know, disciplinary norms are such that you're, you feel obliged to because it's, yeah, it's, it's a pain and it limits you. Um, it's easier to be wrong that way. And, uh, it's, you know, extra work. Uh, so I, I think 
in social psych, that's just not the norm. Um, it's not even really the norm to like explicitly separately state your hypotheses. So in marketing, for example, they have that convention of their like H1, H2, right? And they're still in words. They're just writing sentences, but at least there they're saying like, okay, we're explicitly hypothesizing this, which, uh, I think is helpful. I should, I, I do want to throw out there for people who are interested in uh, terror management theory and mortality salience in particular, the latest episode of the black goat, they spend the entire episode talking about this recent large-scale multi-site replication. This was a many labs project in which they wanted to look at the role of expertise. And the idea was that half the labs were randomly assigned to be advised by some of the leading uh, terror management theory researchers, and half the labs were not. And they all tried to replicate this classic uh, study. Um, one of the original uh, mortality salient studies, and the hope was that they could look at moderation by whether the experts had helped you out. And unfortunately, they couldn't do that because nobody was able to replicate the original finding. So overall, you know, no effect, no effect for the labs that had the expert advisors, no effect for the, the labs that had to replicate it on their own, just nothing. Um, oh, yeah. So, that, so Mia Culpin was not a meta-analysis. It was, it was the many labs. Yeah, no. Yeah, and yeah. and yeah. Samin makes this point on the podcast, the meta-analysis, if you just look at the meta-analysis, you'd be like, terror management theory is in good shape, right? They've identified some moderators that are important. The overall effect size looks pretty good. They're correcting for publication bias, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you really have to question the extent to which a meta-analysis of what we know to be a biased literature tells you something useful when we keep seeing these meta-analyses that are like, things are pretty good, and then they do the big replication, and it's like, oh, we got nothing. Okay, so cue Mickey on meta-analyses. Yeah, I, I feel like you're going to say it. Meta-analyses are <laughs> fucked. You know that. Um, but here's a formal theory um, that I uh, need more beer. You do. I can verify that. So uh, why don't we take a quick break and we'll pick it up here in a minute. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter, uh, where you can at mention the show at four beers pod, or you can DM us. We both check that account on a pretty regular basis. If you'd like to email us, uh, you can email us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com or you can visit our website, fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to the current episode, past episodes, or drop us a line via the contact form. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please do uh, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, if you can. That helps other people discover the show. Uh, Mickey, you mentioned that we uh, picked up a new review lately. Yes, uh, I was uh, tickled by it. It was someone commented on our break music, which uh, 
I quite enjoyed because I know both you and I uh, put great effort into uh, picking what songs uh, we want to have in our break. So uh, thank you for that review. We uh, we appreciate it. That's right. Yeah, uh, it's it's something that we both uh, get excited about um, as music nerds. Okay, so uh, I wanted to just read a couple pieces of follow up. These are uh, things that uh, listeners emailed in. So uh, first of all, uh, graduate student, I'm going to guess this is pronounced Andre because uh, the, the accent is on the last E, uh, very kindly corrected us about our use of inductive versus deductive. And uh, what Andre said is that we actually were confusing our terminology and that we meant something we should have used this term that I had never heard of, abductive. So here is the the characterization that Andre gives. Uh, deductive uh, is reasoning about whether conclusions are logically entailed by premises. Inductive involves generalizing a principle uh, from a pattern in observed data, whereas abductive reasoning is an inference to the best explanation of some observed pattern of data. And uh, Andre says what we're discussing uh, generally fits uh, the definition of abductive. So it's nice to know that term. And, and thanks, uh, Andre, for taking uh, the time to, to write in. And uh, the second piece of follow-up comes from a listener who would prefer to remain anonymous. Uh, and they talked about our experiments episode and pointed out that what we were talking about there really is specific to um, lab experiments that try to simulate reality. And this listener pointed out that a lot of experiments, particularly in political science and economics, aren't that kind of experiment. So these might be field experiments where they're really testing an intervention to see, does intervening in this way get uh, school kids to do their homework more? for example. And that doesn't have a lot of the validity problems with generalizing that we had talked about. And so we appreciate that correction. That's a good point. Um, when we talked about experiments, we were mainly doing so, or at least I was, kind of from the perspective of social psychology, where we typically do these kind of lab experiments that are meant to isolate a me mechanism that we're then trying to um, apply to some real-world problem kind of by extension or generalization. Um, so that's the two pieces of follow-up that I had. Mickey, do you have anything else, or should we talk beer? Uh, well, just one quick follow-up. We, we had a lot of feedback in our last episode, and I, and, and again, UL and I really enjoyed that. So we want to encourage you to correct us, uh, applaud us. Uh, you know, uh, we haven't received in a while uh, an email just like swearing at us and calling us names. So you can do that too if you'd like. Right. Some real scathing criticism. We are, we're excited about that too. Uh, let's see. So what are you, what did you find in my fridge there? I uh, I was uh, attracted to this because it's Muskoka Brewery, so they make a, a Mad Tom IPA, which I, I, I drink quite regularly. Uh, but this is called Ebb and Flow, um, and it's got two words uh, for beers that I like. It's a session sour. Um, but then I looked at the alcohol by volume as 2.4%. So uh, a very, very light beer. Um, this is my third because uh, I had one earlier in the day. So I think it'll be okay. Good. And Rob, how's it going over there? It's going well. I just opened another beer, a Fog Breaker IPA from Anchor. Anchor Brewing. Nice. nice. Keeping it really Northern California with your beer choices. You got to stay on brand, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of, um, do you want to hit us with your next hot take? Okay. So when we think about the timing of the replicability crisis, I feel like there's a narrative that we're, we're sold about ourselves, you know, uh, that, that maybe this is just in journalism, but I feel like it's, it's sort of in the zeitgeist, uh, that 
the replic- replicability crisis was triggered by Stoppel, you know, the Daryl Bem paper in JPSP, this kind of like Icarus-like narrative. Social site got too big. It got too far. It, you know, it went too far. The findings were way over the line, ridiculous. People were making up data, et cetera. And then that triggered, you know, this wholesale reconsideration of research practices and so on. And so I feel like if we call that the kind of dominant explanation, we could, we could debate whether that's true or not. Uh, I'm going to offer an alternative explanation of the timing of the replicability, replicability crisis that would be based more on just sort of old school motivated reasoning. So this explanation says that uh, as a community, we, again, putting my psych hat on, I just switch back and forth as it delights me. Uh, so we only admitted to that statistical power was a major problem uh, when we could afford to. Uh, and in other words, when we had access to affordable, large samples, usually through online studies. Um, and before that, we could not admit that statistical power was as big of an issue as it was because the sacrifice that we would have had to make if we took power more seriously, which I, in some ways is like the biggest – well, it's arguably one of the biggest biggest things we've learned here, right, or come to acknowledge. Um, we would have had to give up too much because if this was like 1990, you have – you know, you're, you're, you're working at a university, you're given, I don't know, 250 subjects, 300 participation, something like that for your fall semester. And if you're going to power up one of your studies, it has a direct zero sum, you know, effect on the number of fun studies you get to do, the number of interesting hypotheses you get to test, etc. So the zero sum payoff uh, trade off was such that um, it was really inconvenient to admit that statistical power mattered. And so we were reluctant to do it. Then internet samples come along, MTurk especially, and now we admit it. And that that's actually the trigger as far as timing goes. Uh, I, I, I want to say you're wrong because I want to I, I want to believe that we saw the error in our ways. Um, I think you know. For, so, so for me, for example, the 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 thing that changed my mind was, and I've t- I've talked about this many times, um, is reading the false positive psychology paper published in in 2011, which detailed all the normal practices uh, that we engaged in and how they can inflate our uh, our nominal alpha values, and that kind of just opened my eyes and made me realize like <laughs> that we fucked up badly, um, but you know. I've sat with this this point of yours now for 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 a bit, um, and I don't think you're wrong. I mean, m- maybe that kind of paper had the reception it did because we could actually do something about it. Um, and again, this hinges on what, it, it, you know if if power really is the, the main thing that we're that we're mostly changing. Um, so we, that's clearly one thing that has changed. Like, I mean, you look at the, 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 the sample sizes today versus, you know, pre 2011. It's like, it's, it's remarkable how, how, how much larger our, our stuff is today. And now we see more pre-registration and, and, and more, um, you know, a, a data sharing and stuff like that as well. But there was never as much resistance to data sharing and data material sharing. It was really the, um, the admission of, of, of questionable research practices and, and maybe with big samples, 
QRPs, questionable research practices, don't matter that much. Like, if you've got a really, really big sample, uh, you fudge a little here and there, you're, you're not going to change your, the, the outcome that much. But if you've got small N, um, you know, taking out a condition, uh, you know, taking out a participant can dra- dramatically change your, your, your p-values. So um, I reluctantly think you're correct. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I agree with Mickey. Uh, and I would just say like, well, that's, I, I don't know if that's a knock on the field so much. It's just like, that's how people operate, right? Like, in order to get people to take action, they have to have some sort of plausible path to to changing things. And without being able to increase your sample sizes, like you can convince people that it's bad to published smaller sample studies, but it's like, well, what am I going to do? In the same way that I'm 100% convinced that climate change is happening, we're causing it, it's going to have dramatic consequences. And yet, you know, I still fly all the time. And it's kind of because I'm like, well, whatever I do doesn't matter. Like, what am I going to do? Right? So I'm, I'm convinced by um, the argument, and, but there's no real way for me to do anything. I'm not going to take a boat to Europe. You know, so... I I don't see that as really being anything other than the, what you would expect, just given how people operate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your analogy is good, right? As soon as there are like eco-conscious flight options, I mean, that doesn't even really make any sense, I suppose. But if there was an eco-conscious flight option, you imagine only- there's like a Zeppelin. <laughs> I yeah, would totally. <laughs> right. Stipulated a Zeppelin. Yeah. And, and you and you only had to pay $20 more for it. You know, now you can choose that. Now norms can emerge that you should choose that, you know, or, you know, say we had mutual funds or something like that for investments where you give up, you know, 0.2% average return, but you're not contributing to climate change somehow. And maybe you're even helping to address it. As soon as that emerges now, maybe there's norms that say you really should do that. If you're, you're a good person, if you do that, um, this sort of motivated morality dynamic. Okay, so this is fourth hot take. Uh, the post-replication crisis era is apparently anti-elitist, right? In a lot of ways, it seems anti-elitist. It seems like kind of egalitarian. There's been a leveling of, uh, you know, a lot of prestigious theoretical re- research programs or, you know, prestigious research programs. And then, and, uh, you know, a lot of scholars of great prominence in social psychology took one on the chin during this period. Um, and so, it looks like some elites got taken down a peg, uh, but arguably this replication crisis, uh, or as we move out of the replication crisis into the post, you know, replication crisis era, that we're going to find ourselves in a new field where resources matter even more. Uh, so we're going to demand better powered samples. We're going to demand maybe more studies. Uh, just as an example, an idea that's been floated in our lab has been that when we run pilot tests to evaluate if we've manipulated an independent variable well, that we should only in those pilot tests collect manipulation check data, not the dependent variables. This way we make a decision about how satisfactory our manipulation is before we run a full study independent that's results independent, you know, so we're not just sort of file drawer affecting, you know, our, our own you know, manipulation selection, if that makes sense. And I'm receptive to the, you know, this is, this was not my idea, but it was, I think a good idea. It certainly had a clear rationale, open science rationale behind it. But it also occurred to me, like, who can afford to do that? You know, who can afford to run, you know, relatively large, large end 
Turk studies just to figure out what the manipulation is. It doesn't even give you any information on the causal effect because you didn't include the dependent measures. I could, I could afford to do that to a, to a point, you know, um, but I, I wouldn't think that most folks could do that. And if we're going to move into a world where we, where norms dictate you do something like that, I would think some people would be much more advantaged in that world than, than others. Whereas in the old world, uh, you know, often it was middle status universities had the biggest subject supplies that could run the most, you know, subjects and actually had a, had a leg up in production in some ways. Um, what do you all think? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Um, but I wonder if we were fooling ourselves all along that, you know, the, you know, the lone scientist model maybe maybe was the incorrect model. Um, th- this notion that anyone anywhere could run a study that could actually provide evidence for something. Um, maybe that's a naive notion. And maybe uh, a more a realistic notion is, you know, team science, uh, one where gr- large groups of people, not small groups even, like large groups of people work together collaboratively. Maybe even before then, you know, as a field, we we somehow decide what the important questions are as opposed to like off the cuff testing of, you know, this, that, or the other. But we like, we, we kind of like, we're, we're trying to figure out like answers to like a, a series of questions, but not like anything. Um, and then we try to address those questions, you know, in teams of people. Um, again, this is maybe, this is also, a, 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 I guess, a utopia. Um, but it seems like that would be a way of getting, better answers to our questions as opposed to what we're doing now, which is kind of shooting at the hip and, and like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Only the people who've got like big grants and have big subject pools and in fancy universities can, can, can do this stuff and, and not anybody else. Yeah. I mean, it's not like that model um, where you have these very large collaborations can't work. So in physics, they somehow figure out how to allocate credit, how to decide whom to hire and promote, and so on, despite the fact that these authors, these papers have hundreds of authors sometimes, right? So they're clearly, that this is a problem that some fields have solved. And I don't think that our model of like the single lab, single investigator is you know, the, we need to regard that as the only way that you could do science. It's sort of a historical accident that we happen to have ended up here. So, so tell me more about how the multi-lab model could solve this potential resource inequality problem in social psychology. So say I'm a faculty member at, you know, Harvard or something. I run a, I run a lab. We have near infinite resources to run certainly MTurk studies. Uh, how, how would I move out of that model where I use my resources to benefit my, my postdocs and grad students, et cetera, and myself to include larger teams? Like, what does it look like? Well, it's more that somebody who's not at Harvard would have the opportunity to compete against you. So like, you know, let's say I'm at, you know, underfunded regional state school, I could propose a study to one of these big multi-lab consortia like the Psychological Science Accelerator. If they like it, they run it in a bunch of labs, right? And so then I get to lead the project and there's a bunch of co-authors because lots of people helped out, but I might get, you know, a high profile, high impact publication out of that, even though I personally couldn't have paid for a hundredth of that data collection. So it sort of just puts people on an equal footing, I guess. Okay. Sub hot take, hot take, 
sub-hot-take within the larger hot-take is another way in which the post-replication crisis era could wind up being elitist in ways we, we would not like and, and maybe didn't anticipate is that uh, if we start to have the published record full of null results, right, through registered reports, uh, you know, showing your dirty laundry, taking the time to write up and try to publish in online journals that are open to null results, uh, you know, your your failed studies uh, is going to lead, it's just going to flood the literature with lots and lots and lots of papers that people aren't going to be willing to read. You know, like imagine if, you know, we fully fixed the file drawer effect problem by writing up every damn study we ever ran and, and publishing it somewhere, uh, then we would, you know, we would publish, I, I anyway would publish like two and a half times as many papers as I do now. And, uh, and you know, arguably that's good, but we would then strain what anybody could possibly read or even index, arguably. I guess meta-analyses would improve greatly and would serve a much bigger indexing role in this in this future. Um but anyway, this this world would create all sorts of problems. Like you'd spend less time working on other problems and generating positive results, which we all kind of seem to think are more informative because uh, we have this bias. But it would also arguably lead to a more elitist allocation of attention because you're now in this cacophonous world flooded with papers and you don't know which ones to read. You really don't know which null effects to pay attention to. And so you go to... Yoel or Mickey's null effects and you read those because like they're prestigious excellent social psychologists and they get a Matthew effect where they benefit from their prior reputation uh well I mean I, I okay I, I don't buy off all your uh, your assumptions there um so one assumption is and and, and you all correct me if I'm wrong here um I don't think even the most like ardent open science person would say every single null Every single one should be published. I think there's like a, a series, a, a, a portion of those nulls that are dumb. They're like, I forgot to put like, you know, you know, uh, the, the right code here. And like, I actually didn't, didn't allocate participants to the right conditions. So, you know, that's a null, but it's a stupid null. And there's, just, you know, I don't know how many percentage, a percentage that, that are dumb studies. Um, but even, so let, let's take those out. Um, but even then, um, do we need to have full papers for, for every single null out there? I think some nulls are truly, truly informative. They're actually important to get out there because they're like, oh, I guess that idea that maybe a lot of us had isn't good. So those deserve full, full coverage. But some are like, well, I have this idea and, you know, this is the reason why. And I, maybe that, maybe we just need an abstract. Maybe we just need an abstract. And, and just for indexing purposes alone, uh, we get the abstract going. So that, that was one, one put, the only thought I had to push back. But you're right. The issue is now, um, think about how many papers there are published right now, most of them being positive. I mean, we can't read them all. It's impossible. So we're we're already filtering our attention based on maybe on eminence. We talked about that in in, in one of our episodes, Um, maybe on a a bunch of other different uh, heuristics that we use. Um, So this would add to that. Uh, Yeah, it would would cause problems. And yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe we would rely on other heuristics like poor ones like eminence and... um, I don't know. What do you think, you all? Yeah, I mean, I, d- I do feel like we're kind of in this attention overload world already. So I, I don't, I honestly don't know how much more dystopian it could get. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I certainly don't feel like every null result needs to be published. Um, I don't know whether there's people who do feel that way. I feel like, uh, particularly when it comes to registered reports, this is a 
complaint that people often have. Um, do you, does that mean, you know, journals are obliged to publish all of these like, you know, crappy failed studies? And I, I think that misunderstands what a registered report is supposed to do. So it's, it's just a way of a different way of thinking about like how you design a study. You have to design it such that regardless of the results you get, it's interesting, right? And we're, we're not used to doing things that way, but you can imagine that, you know, that that is a way that you could design a study, right? And that puts that that demand up front because if you don't design a study that way, then at the stage one, the reviewers or the editor are going to say, hey, no, this like if this fails, it's just completely uninteresting or uninterpretable. So we're not interested, right? Give us something that's going to uh, tell us something useful regardless of how the results turn out. And that that's kind of like a a model that I'd like to work towards, at least for a kind of confirmatory research. Like, obviously, there should still be a place for trying new things uh, and being exploratory. And there, I think that, like, you can talk about what's the the right way to handle failures. Like, I do think it's useful to other people to know, like, oh, Rob Willer's lab tried to do this and it didn't work, right? Maybe I was thinking of doing something similar and I'm like, I won't waste my time. But then it's like a, a lot to demand of busy researchers that they write up a bunch of failures, right? There's there's opportunity costs there as well. I don't know how you would enforce that. Like it just seems like a mess. Um so I guess I'm I'm most enthusiastic about just moving towards incentivizing a style of research that doesn't depend on the predicted result turning out the way you predicted in order for the results to still be interesting. Yeah, one thing I realize we're probably reaching the end of our our time here and so i did want to say that i feel like my hot takes seem too negative towards psychology especially as someone who sits sort of astride you know one foot in psychology and one foot in sociology uh you know sociology has not even begun to take up uh replication as a major serious issue or take up you know even like public posting of data sets pre-analysis plans or like under 1% of the field now, you know, it's, uh, anyway, but this is not, not to bag on sociology. I think that is all coming to sociology, which I think is going to be wonderful. And I'd, I'd love to play a, play a role in that, but that it is to say that I think that psychology, what I've seen, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I feel like there's been this just amazing sea change in like three to four years around standard research practices in psychology that's just been stunning, you know, after, you know, spending over a decade in the field before it. Um, I, I just never would have imagined things could change that fast. And, you know, for, you know, for all the criticisms that I've, well, maybe criticism, anyway, for all the critical hot takes I've, I've uh, hypothesized here, uh, you know, I would want to note that in a lot of ways, the field got tested, you know, and was like, what do you want to do about this? And they had to choose, you know, like, you know, continue with a certain set of methods or commit to scientific values. And, and the field collectively chose the scientific route. It's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it's easy because you always want things to be better to lose sight of how dramatically things have changed. And when I think back to how things were done when I was in grad school versus now, it's just like a different world. Um, and I, I think, you know, for a while there, I'm going to say like, you know, let's say five years ago, it really seemed like the argument could go either way. And there were plenty of like prominent voices saying everything is fine. This is all overblown. And I think it's not just that I live in a bubble. I think it's pretty clear 
that those people lost the argument. And it's just like now become normal to do all this stuff, to, you know, pre-register your studies, to post data, to run larger samples. It's just like so normative in a way that it seems like I, I think it would have been really difficult for me to imagine that things would change so quickly if you had asked me, you know, in 2008, how are things going to go when we were both in grad school? Totally. Norms are not supposed to happen this fast. Yeah, I think it's amazing as well. As you guys were talking, I was like, huh, would I want to go back to those bad old days? Like, you know, like small end studies, you know, you know, picking off participants that don't work. Like um, life would be a bit easier. Man, I feel like I had this this moment <laughs> where I, I really felt like uh, this must have been like, I don't know, 2009, 2010, something like that, where it was like, ah, I really nailed this. I'm getting it. Like all my studies are working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, it was uh, a real pleasure to have you. Ah, total, total pleasure to be here. Yeah. Th 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 thanks so much, Rob. We really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.